0: Welcome to another episode of Chris Reed's book. Welcome back. I am releasing this episode a day early because tomorrow my wife and I will be going to a performance of the Mythbusters. They are on tour and they are coming to the area, and I love their show so. We got some tickets and we're going to go see them. So, in the interest of keeping up with my recording schedule, I decided to record this episode tonight instead of on my normal Tuesday. So, it is Monday, April 13th, 2015, when I will be recording this. Hello, future people, as some of my favorite podcasters say. Uh, Tonight, we will be recording chapters 17 and 18 because again, I'm trying to keep these, I guess, around an hour in length. And uh, based on how I've been reading per, how long I've been reading per page so far, it'll be about two chapters. Because that's uh, about twelve typed pages per. Uh, about uh, for comparative purposes, if you're at all curious, curious. Yeah, <laughs> I can talk sometimes. The last podcast, which was chapters 13 uh 14 15 and 16 I had to think there that was about 16 pages worth so tonight chapter 17 is entitled nanitic return and chapter 18 a true account um while I'm scrolling back up to nanitic return just want to say thank you again for tuning in another week thank you for listening thank you for sharing this podcast with a friend, a family member, etc. If this is your first podcast, this is the disclaimer I've been giving lately, you probably want to go back and get all the other ones and listen to them first, even though my first two are kind of rough. Um, And that is because this is me reading my first book, Mystery and Deceit from Earth to Mars. It is a science fiction novel, and I'm doing this to make the book a little more accessible to all my readers. I'm currently in the process of editing it for a second edition. Uh, Once that's done, I'm going to try and find an agent for it again with a new introduction, which I will be recording at some point here. And hopefully I start to overrun myself, you know, start to edit over where I am reading from. That way you, my fan base, can get uh, a taste of what that second edition will be like compared to this first one. But, again, I would encourage you, if this is your first time listening, to listen from the beginning. Because these are sequential chapters. Like I say, today will be chapters 17 and 18. If you would like to share this with a friend or to get all the episodes so far, you can look me up on iTunes, on your favorite podcast player. Look for Chris Reed's book or just Chris Pullman. Or you can head over to my website narclaninc.com that's n-a-r-c-l-a-n-i-n-c.com that has uh, some social media contact info on it and hopefully this weekend I will be updating that website but in the meantime it does have links off to my author twitter account to my author facebook page and also links to the mp3 files to the raw mp3 versions of all the episodes of this podcast so you can download those directly and just play them from your favorite media player maybe you have an old Zune lying around you can throw them on there and listen that is just fine with me but mainly thank you for coming back another week so with that said let's jump into it chapter 17 nanitic return you know he doesn't like to be disturbed. I know, honey, but I do need to talk to him, and there's no time like the present. And anyway, I should think he sees it coming, replied James as he left for Meng's chamber. For a year now, the eight of us had been working together at the Atmo lab secreted within our defense in Wisconsin, building a more solid base of operations, improving existing tech, and trying to revive and perfect our old magnetic research. The company, partly due to the mercenary income of Meng's crew and partly due to the avalanche of technological advances we were making, was well beyond self-sustaining, making its way onto the list of the most profitable companies in the U.S. The ongoing DOD projects didn't hurt in that vein either, of course. The private research had also been advancing, though slower. Despite knowing that the nanite tech was alive and well within each of us, extracting and duplicating it was another matter entirely. Or so it seemed until James woke up one morning. He realized our original approach wasn't completely off the mark. That is, it did have two key components, volume and activation in a living organism. There was a critical mass of nanites needed for bonding to even occur. The nanites, being a hive-networked organism, knew this too. As such, not until that critical mass was reached would the nanites respond as James, Adam, Melinda, and I were hoping they would. And the basic answer was that a critical mass couldn't be achieved in a petri dish. So the first necessary component was critical mass. The second was activation energy. Enough raw power had been coursing through the room that night so long ago that it was literally dense in the air. Enough so that the nanites could harvest and use it directly. When we originally tried the bonding that night, a lifetime ago now, there was something that had worked. All the calculations had been ramped up so high that there was an extreme overabundance of both nanites and raw energy, the two critical components. That's why we eight had bonded with the nanites. However, there was also an upper limit to nanitic density during bonding. Too many nanites around, and none took the lead in becoming symbiotic. They essentially adapted to a pseudo-symbiotic state, neither bonding nor replicating, and that, self-replicating in a living organism, had always been one of the ultimate goals. After all, without self-replication, the supply of nanites would eventually wear out and fail, leaving no trace of their existence. The only reason that the test marines maintained their heightened prowess so long was because of the literal infusion of a multitude of the original nanites into their cells. Had they not been so overexposed, their heightened manifestations would have disappeared much sooner. In us, though, the perfect amounts of nanites were present, and with plentiful ambient energy, the nanites were able to quickly bond to us. Realizing all of this, sent James to his lab early that morning to frantically record and try to work through his epiphany. After a few hours, he had the answer. He knew the quantities and amounts needed to produce successful nanitic bonding. Better yet, Such a bonding would produce more active results than just heightened abilities. End result? Their small group could now expand. While working with Adam the previous night, James hadn't seen the obvious answers, but now it made perfect sense. The accident that had shut down the project had been the best thing that could have happened to our nanitic research. Not only did it create a perfect environment for nanitic bonding, one James was sure we could now safely replicate, but also showed the further capabilities of the nanites. For instance, that night the massive amounts of raw electricity coursing through us had been channeled into nanitic replication. At the time, our bodies had been nanite-poor. James suspected, though, that even now the nanites within us all could likewise channel raw energy in such a way to avoid damage to the host. He wasn't sure if it would always result in nanitic replication, but felt felt positive it was possible. Putting Stylist to pad and frantically scrawling his thoughts and minute calculations, James headed back toward the residence buildings as he felt himself coming to an end in terms of recalling and recording his realizations. Entering the Atmo hall, James slowed as he neared Meng's chamber. The door, as eerily as ever, opened just before James reached it. "'Come in, James,' said Meng from within. "'I expected you.' "'Of course you did,' James thought to himself." Do you also know why I've come? He asked as he entered. I sensed much excitement, replied Meng, his eyes opening after he turned to face James fully. Though I didn't look into it too much. My visions have changed drastically since this morning around, oh, 05, 12, though. What dawned on you when you woke this morning, friend? The answer we've been searching for. We have the nanite tech again, but this time perfected. It's simpler than we first thought. Lower amounts of nanites, drastically lower power levels. That would agree with what I've been seeing. As I say, my visions have changed drastically. At 0512, a new world dawned, James. Continents shifted and world leaders took to a knee. A bright future lies before us now, James. We need only grab a hold of it. What Meng didn't share at the time were the dark storm clouds he also saw that day. Not only had he been met by the new dawn, but also by Pandora just closing her box. Such visions of the future concerned Meng. He had seen glimpses of such visions before, though then they were faint and fleeting. Since early this morning, such semi-apocalyptic visions had come to the fore. The future was always in flux, true, but when different time strands all trended the same way, they surely meant something sinister and imminent. For the moment, Meng pushed such doubts out of his mind. After all, they were still fairly far distant and nebulous visions. The immediate future, though, was very clear in Meng's mind. What Nanetic Tech meant for them was growth and stability. It meant the ability to help more people across more of the world. Leaders taking a knee. This was never meant to be to rule nations, James said. No, of course it wasn't James, but it was meant to protect them. And they will turn to us, supplicants on bent knee, asking for just such help. It's only a slight extension of what we already do. Think of it. Right now, we serve by necessity. The governments of the world are busy enough with affairs of state. They don't have time to deal with the filth and dregs of this world. We can. Between NAR and Atma, we have enough resources to become the international force that is so desperately needed right now. And what would happen, you suppose, if governments began to legitimize our efforts, if they gave us jurisdiction over international territory? Right now, we're tolerated because we're small and effectively necessary. We could become an internationally recognized peacekeeping force. Nations would bow before us for our help, not lording over. War would become a thing of the past. Not only because no one could stand up to a force such as we could muster, but also because there would be no need. Governments could focus their energies at home, toward medicine, toward science, toward space exploration. They will come to us for such reasons, James, and we will accept their offers in order to help them. As sure as Meng was of such a future, storm clouds yet gathered on the edges of such a vision. Seeming to jump tracks, Meng said... Have you told anyone else of your discovery? I couldn't have kept it from Mel if I wanted to, James replied. Otherwise, no. Of course, Meng rose, grasping James' shoulders and saying simply, We should have a company meeting. The core hate. I ordered a cake. He turned and strode out of the room. James always felt as though Meng lived two seconds too far in the future to really appreciate the present. The eight of us gathered in the NAR conference room. The room itself had been redone while the rest of the NAR facilities were expanded. The north and west wings of the facility, now standing two stories tall, would have blocked in the old conference room, removing the purpose for the wall windows. Instead, we had replaced our old conference room with an enlarged company break room and kitchen, adding a clone of the original room atop. The east wing had been enlarged and expanded to serve as our production and testing floor. As we gathered, it was once more coming into spring. From the conference room's wall windows, we could see far across the surrounding forest as it came into full bloom and leaf. A small grove of cherry trees lining the path that bisected the west-north wing courtyard and passed to the residence town were in full bloom. On the observation deck, you could hear, if you listened carefully, pine cones popping open and dropping their winter seeds to the ground beneath. Robins and sparrows sang. Meg and James had yet to arrive. We were rife with anticipation. Save Melinda, of course, who had a an knowing smile on her face. Come on, Mel, give! Adam pressured, sitting next to her. It's their news, Adam. You'll just have to wait. If I focused hard enough. I bet I could find it in your head, Adam said in reply. I have my own tricks that would keep you out, Melinda said with a smile. The large doors to the room swung open as James and Meng entered, carrying a large, flat box that they sat down on the table. Meng, going to the minibar, grabbed some ice and scotch for himself and a Jameson and Coke for James before beginning. Friends, today is a momentous day. As I meditated this morning, I saw a great many things. I, of course, saw the typical mix of battles and missions, such as I've told all of you about before. Meng often tried to relate his visions to us, but often failed. There was just too much flowing out his mind too quickly to relate all of it. But then, suddenly, my visions changed. It was as if the roads of the past and the future shifted beneath me, coming sharply through a single point which was... James... Which was a realization, James said, swirling his drink. This was big if he was drinking during the day. A realization that only came to me as I slept. Out, man, out! exclaimed Adam. Simply put, we have the nanites once more. Meng strode forward, set his drink down, and tore off the top of the large box. Inside was a cake that read, Back in business with micro machines littered across the surface. Sorry they aren't nanomachines. Closest I could come, Meng said with a grin as so he retrieved his glass. We were still trying to believe what we had heard. You're serious, Jim, Adam said, standing and leaning forward on the table. No joke. For real, man. We'll have to refine it all a bit and put it to test, but it should work. Adam looked around, as we all were, he walked over to the bar, grabbed a can of beer, began walking back toward us, shook it and grabbed the... cracked the top, sprang us all. "'Yeah!' Adam exclaimed as we all tried to get away from the spray. Once his can ran out, he returned to the bar, cracked a beer to drink, then served his bartender, exclaiming, "'Drinks are on me!' Meng, meanwhile, made his way next to James, handing him a gilded knife. "'This is a big deal, James.' "'he said as James began cutting the cake. "'We all shared a piece, toasting the accomplishment. "'Calling down, James had Jeannie mark us all out for the rest of the day "'as we continued celebrating and even began going over "'some of the finer points of James's epiphany. "'Such brilliance had James, though, "'that no faults were found in his reasoning. "'Something he began scrolling on a napkin, "'that something that continued to evolve over the following days and weeks.' were the primary rules in nanite symbiosis, or simply PRINs. Later, as we watched commuter employees begin to head home for the evening, James pulled Meng aside. Meng, throughout today I came to realize something more about the nanites. Oh? Meng asked. Come on, don't tell me you don't know, James replied. James, Remember. I see images of the future, not facts. I see men and women in similar uniforms. They walk, fly, and appear into battle into overwhelming odds and come out unscathed. I also see libraries filling with books and new research facilities being built worldwide. Tell me what I'm seeing, James. The possibilities with how we can now bond nanites is practically limitless, James said. What's inside of us now is basically a coexisting hive organism. With this new understanding of the tech, we can create a true symbiosis between hive and host. Where our physical and mental abilities have been artificially boosted, now we can permanently augment them however we want. We could conceivably make a person able to lift the Empire State Building, be able to leap across the Grand Grand Canyon as though it were a crack in the sidewalk. We could even create armor that acts like a person's own skin that would be impervious to projectile weaponry and resilient against explosives. The sky's the limit. James, it sounds like you've already started to see that. Go. Spend the night with Melinda. I have the feeling it's the last one you'll spend at home for a while. Finishing, Meng patted James on the shoulder. As he walked away, Meng said, I knew you'd come through, James. Just remember what comes with great power. Wild parties, James said jokingly, adding, great responsibility. They could rule the world. No more army alive could oppose what they could now become, all but gods. They had to implement this new technology as soon as they could, first within themselves. Even their current symbioses could be upgraded and enhanced. Once news broke... Of the Ubermansk being real, of the Superman becoming reality, they would need to be able to defend themselves against any and all who would seek to pervert their find. And perhaps most importantly, they had to be able to protect themselves. A kidnapping for extortion of such, te- such technology was an extreme possibility. As James's mind raced, a familiar tingle found its way within his head. Yes, Hun, he thought. I think you've worked enough for today, don't you? came the thought reply. James was yet staring out toward the wide expanse of green toward the back of the company property. Melinda, meanwhile, stood talking at the bar. What did you have in mind? James thought back. From where I stood talking to Mang, I could see James blush as Melinda excused herself and headed over toward him, taking his arm and leading him out onto the wraparound balcony. That was chapter 17, Nanitic Return. I'm going to take a little bit of a drink, and then we will start with chapter 18, A True Account. Okay. Chapter 18, A True Account. But why not? It's all in the history books anyway. Look it up. I have, but what I don't know is if recorded history is to be believed, especially after what you've been telling me. James, why shouldn't you? Why shouldn't it? Eric questioned offhandedly, looking out his window. Because it was written by the victors, not your people. What's the difference? Eric asked. The truth. The truth is the difference, I said. In the end, only truth remains. We have nothing else to fall back on. The truth? Eric turned toward me, ire building in his eyes. The truth is collective fancy, an agreed upon fallacy, truth is what we choose to believe, not what is, was, or will be. Then I want the facts or the matter the figures, events. I want to know what actually occurred, I pressed. The facts, Eric said. Yes, Eric, the facts. Are you really ready to dive down that rabbit hole again? he asked. "'Tell me,' I said. Eric again leant back in his chair, the angst gone from his face and replaced with only pity as he gazed longingly outside. Spoken words. Such an inefficient medium for information transference. Even worse than the written word. And with all our advanced projective reality... Holographic info systems, the establishment refuses to use them for information transmittal. Officially. What do you mean by that, officially? I asked. Eric simply moved his eyes to gaze at me, the mischievous twinkle once more there. How else would Chaos's agents keep his plan going so consistently for this long? Over time, I remembered idea is corrupted. But a contemporary, primal, original idea constantly kept fresh is incorruptible. And with I the only source of nanites left in this system, such would be the only means of keeping the idea alive for this long. By keeping the text secret, the plan is kept secret. Eric returned his gaze back out the bay window. What the... About the facts, Eric. About what really happened. I forget. Maybe by tomorrow I'll remember. Eric, though, couldn't forget anything about the past. Not even the slightest detail could change itself in his mind. Such was I to find out later. His mind worked exactly like an old computer, storing information perfectly. It was his curse, I suppose, but also such a powerful gift I only wish he would have shared it with me in more bite-sized pieces. Tell me more about the battles you were in, I said, trying to leverage the moment before me. In any event, all I needed was patience. I knew that I could get more information from Eric with patience than I ever would researching. He had been there, after all. Imagine what insight we would have on history were we historians, able to talk in person with Agamemnon Alexander, Julius Caesar, Genghis Khan, Napoleon, or any of the great military minds. Here I sat with one of them, a font of knowledge, yet one who at this moment offered no water. It was simply a matter of finding the switch to make that font once more flow. "'I'm getting hungry again,' Eric said. "'You okay with spaghetti?' he asked, getting up out of his chair and walking toward the kitchen. Spaghetti, I asked. Yeah, you know, long rod-shaped pasta under some sort of a tomato sauce. Actually, I've never heard of it, I responded. Eric stopped in the doorway to the kitchen, grasping it with his hand and shaking his head. Never heard of spaghetti. Wow. Come in here for a culinary lesson, Sonny. Your taste buds will thank you. As he strode into the kitchen, I grabbed my note tab and obediently followed. If his soup was any measure, this spaghetti was sure to be a delight, not to mention the clear possibility of data mining Eric as he prepared his dish. I sat at the table as Eric fished in his fridge for ingredients. Normally I make my spaghetti ahead, keep it in here, he said from within the fridge. But it seems that I'm out of pre-made. "'so we'll just have to boil some water as I chop these,' "'he said as he emerged from behind the fridge door "'with an armful of vegetables. "'Carrots, onions, mushrooms, and zucchini,' I said. "'Right idea on them all. "'These are slightly different varieties, though. from my crop last year,' he said. "'He took a pot from the cupboard, filled it with water, "'and set it on the stove. "'From an overhead cupboard he removed a container "'of rod-shaped pasta.' Spaghetti, I assume, I said. Correct, he responded. I suppose you make those, I said as I pointed at the container. The contents were a brown-green color. Yep, whole wheat, spinach, garlic, spaghetti. Made by these own two hands, he said, admiring his hands in front of his face, before picking up a chopping knife and starting in on the vegetables. Why do you do it? I asked Eric, being intentionally vague. Ah vagueness. You wouldn't you won't have your history lesson just yet, James. No, not just yet. He ended rhythmically to the chop of his blade. Then how about why do you do so much cooking by hand? Food synths today can produce a nutritionally balanced and adequate meal with much less effort. Very true, he responded, but something they cannot do is relieve stress for me, the way crafting something to eat by hand can. I don't understand. Of course you don't, James. As someone who has probably never prepared a meal by hand, how could you? You know that Hank still does his cooking by hand, too? I did not, I replied. Well, that did help make some sense of the odors I had smelled while I- While at LNH, I'd been to only a few establishments that still actually cooked food by hand. They all had a similar odor to Eric's kitchen now, warm, earthy, and moist. Yeah, not a whole lot of us left. I argue, Eric said toward the carrots he now chopped. I argue that it changes the taste. Hank agrees with me on that. He said to me, tilting his head peering over his glasses and pointing at me with his knife. You can judge once we eat, he added, returning his attention to his vegetables. So you do it just to relax, I asked. Tilting his head to the side, Eric said, also because it reminds me of old times. A hook I could use. I remember the times that James, Adam, and I would go camping, A smell of food cooking over an open fire, Eric said, his chopping paused as he closed his eyes, drawing in a long breath with a smile. It was as if he could smell those aromas of so long ago. He let his smile drop away as he exhaled, his shoulders drooping. This is the closest I can come to that anymore. The closest I've come in many decades. I could feel a deep sadness from him then, a sense of longing for the time gone by. He looked at his work, brought his hands up slightly, opening them, while keeping the knife balanced in his right hand. He stood there for a moment, studying his hands. Have you ever thought about what your hands do? He said to no one in particular. What they've done. What they will do? He paused again, looking at his hands inquisitively, as though he had caught something in them that might not have been there before. Mine have done... so much. So much. He curled the fingers of both hands, loosely clasping the knife once more, and slowly turned his hands over and back, over and back, over and back. Pausing to look at them again, he seemed to discover the knife in his hand, found the cutting board with its contents, touched the zucchini, gently grasping it, and taking a slow but deliberate slice of it with the knife. Then another, and another. It was a scene much like watching a child figure out the use of a hammer or a rattle for the first time. It helps me relax. And remember... Now was the moment to act. Tell me what you remember. Eric smiled, looking at me out of the corner of his eye. I told you, not yet. The moment had failed me. In some ways I felt as though he had created it just to lead me into trying to lead him once more, only to thwart the attempt. Why not? I said, a bit petulant. Because you could not understand, he replied couldn't understand what? I asked. Eric sat down his knife, sighed, went to the sink, and ran some water over his hand. Either my reasoning behind not telling you, or the way I would have to tell the story itself. He turned off the faucet, flicked water from his hand onto a pan on the stove, smirking as it sizzled. The way I remember events, how I understand them right now, you simply couldn't he said, dumping the carrots into the pan. Just think what my still being alive means about me, he said as he swirled the pan's contents. What you've seen and heard, he added quietly, what that tells you about me. He stared at the carrots, their root aroma filling the kitchen. It changes how I remember things. It changes my perspective, Alters how I perceive reality. Doesn't change the facts of it all, just how I perceive it. And so also how I'd relate it. He again swirled the pan. You wouldn't understand. Eric, I'm a reporter. I'm used to trying to make sense of things that don't. He smiled. Fair enough. You won't accept it, but this time you wouldn't be able to. I hope you'll understand when I say I can't believe you, I replied. Oh, I understand it, yes. Something in him switched conversational tracks, coming across visibly as he snapped around and grabbed the cutting board again. You know, the thing about good homemade spaghetti sauce is that it takes patience, timing. Add one vegetable too soon and it's soft in the end. Not crisp and refreshing. Just don't just doesn't have the right crunch to it. Don't pay the pan enough attention and everything comes out burnt. No, spaghetti sauce requires the proper amount of attention to detail as well as the proper timing. "Main reason my food is synth," I said, not hearing his underlying message. "But" Eric said a piece of carrot in his teeth as he tried to cool it down before chomping on it with an approving smile. It takes all the enjoyment out of the process. That familiar twinkle in his eye was back as he dumped the mushrooms and onion into the pan, drizzling a little olive oil as he tossed the contents. An incredible aroma once more filled the room. For me, at least, these days, the journey is my favorite part. So... "'You won't share any more history lessons with me right now,' I asked. "'Correct. See? You're learning,' he grinned. "'Then what can you share with me as we wait for your spaghetti to be ready?' "'I could hear the water beginning to boil, the vegetables smelled as though they were caramelizing, "'and Eric again reached into his fridge, pulling out a jar of something red as he said, "'Why need we talk of anything at all? Sometimes silence,' speaks more than does speech. I smiled and shook my head. It was a skill to know when to just shut up and listen. But now is not one of those times, James. Eric, sorry. If you won't share with me more TDF tidbits or more tales of battle you fought, then, then there must be something you're willing to share. Eric twisted the lid off the jar to a satisfying thuck as suction was broken. He poured the jar's contents into the vegetable pan, the hissing and crackling subsiding as he said, Okay, fine. How about a mini-biography? Isn't that history? I asked. Eric grinned again, stirring the vegetable sauce. Not quite. The story has virtually no impact on overall history, but it is personally significant. You see, I was best man at James and Melinda's wedding. Eric's face brightened in his reverie. It took James a while to get his head out of his arse and actually realize what he had in front of him, but he did it. "'Where was the ceremony?' I asked. "'Redeemer United Church of Christ in Pewaukee, Wisconsin.' Between the project and the start of NAR, they got hitched. Eric tested his sauce, made a face, ground some pepper in what I assumed to be salt, into the pan. "'You know that stuff is bad for you,' I said. "'Salt?' Eric replied, so they say. I'm alive and kicking, though. There was a point there. Certain laws of nutrition probably didn't apply to Eric, though. Anyway, those two really went overboard, trying to do all the stuff themselves. And by hand, yet. I mean, they sent out save-the-date cards with this silken streamer that they had threaded cut-out numbers onto for the date. I'm still not sure, curiously, if they were trying to be frugal or if they actually just wanted to do everything themselves. Probably because they still aren't sure. (laughs) But anyway, come the wedding weekend, things started going wrong. Back then, the entire wedding party would get special clothes, either buy or rent to wear. Things are a lot more relaxed these days, of course, but James had picked out this black, pant and coat, purple vest, and tie bit. The place he rented from, this tux place, got it all backwards. Half the coats were the wrong color, tie and vests were mismatched for the ushers. We got to the hall where the reception was to be after the wedding the next day, and they weren't ready for us. Water's boiling. Hand me the pasta, will you? So, thank you. As I handed it to him, he dumped the whole contents into the boiling water. The pot's contents seemed to increase in entropy for a moment before settling back down as the pasta began to cook. Sorry about that. Needed a moment. Eric stirred the sauce as he continued. So the days leading up to the wedding went less than super. Melinda was upset, uh, quite upset, that night before. James, with that manner he had, tried to keep things moving as smoothly as possible. The next day dawned with some rain, but then turned sunny and warm, a good omen. The wedding went well, other than my fumbling a bit much with the rings as I handed them to the pastor. As well as when Melinda's dress got caught on the floor of the altar. But otherwise, it went well. I wasn't facing them, but as I understand it, Melinda was saying her vows. As she did, she was making most of my fellow groomsmen cry. It was a happy day. James and Melinda shared a lot of happy years with each other. Their only regret in life was that they never had children. Oh, they planned to after the insurrection, but of course in order to bring it to an end, James and Meng had to make the ultimate sacrifice. Eric began to choke up. Even though he wasn't fully facing me, I could see tears welling up in his eyes. They shared such love I saw it that day so long ago I had to see and live well that James is lost to Demel. Eric looked at me, a tear rolling down his cheek. They are each other's life, you know I now I nodded now was the time to shut up and listen. They lived and loved for each other. And to see that die, Eric trailed off, his gaze falling to the floor as it also turned inward, remembering his old friends. His jaw moved, lips trembling as his eyes searched his memory. So much pain. Tears rolled down, both his cheeks dropping to the floor such a waste. He sniffed, raising his eyes to meet mine. No words were necessary, nor would they have done. All I could do was let the empathy I felt show on my face as Eric worked through his memories. He looked away, squeezing his eyes shut. A few more tears rolled down his cheek. He he grasped the edge of the stove with his hand, pulling his body around to face it. Only then, Food left to prepare in front of him, did he refocus and gather himself? He opened his eyes, took a deep breath, and stirred the sauce. His jaw still moved, trying to find a way to express something words couldn't. Using what he later described as a pasta spoon, Eric lifted out a noodle, blew a nut, and tasted it. Just right. He reached into an overhead cupboard, pulled out a large colander, and strained the pasta, adding some green-tinted olive oil once he was done. Would you grab two plates, James? They're in, they're in the last cupboard behind me on the left. I did so, without comment, bringing them over to Eric, where he plated two mounds of pasta with a generous ladle of the sauce, adding some shredded white cheese from a container and a sprig of parsley. We sat down at the table and began eating. The meal's now somber tone changed the food somehow. Despite the light warmth of the day and the savory welcoming of the meal, I could still feel loss. Even the light about us seemed to dim to a neutral yellowish gray. My first fork of pasta, as had the soup, sent tinglings of sensation throughout my body from my head to my toes. Heeding Eric's later, earlier admonition, I simply enjoyed the meal and found that doing so helped to lift the mood. Thank you. I managed halfway into the meal. For what? Eric said. For sharing. Both the story and the meal. Eric looked up at me and smiled sadly. The tears were yet in his eyes as he reached over the table and patted my hand. He looked out the window once more. I shouldn't cry just for them, but I do. To lose those closest to you is hardest. It was such a play of intense emotions. It did nothing to but cement in my mind the truth of what Eric told me that week. From a superhuman chorus of voices earlier to a very singular and very alone display of sorrow, as much as the man before me wasn't like any other human... He was absolutely human. While writing this and looking back, I cannot put into words just how fortunate I feel for having such an opportunity to observe Eric Pullman thus. He has become my friend and a very real part of my life. But it is, as always, hard to look in the mirror and distinguish such parts of my life from that which is me and me alone. In that respect, I saw Eric in a way... That was completely separate from me. His emotions then were his own. and I, but an observer. That was chapter 18. I hope that I did justice to the writing of this chapter. I hope that any vocalizations I brought to this really did justice to what I tried to express in the text. That said... Let's just keep the ending of this short and sweet. Please keep coming back week after week. Thank you for doing so. Share this podcast with a friend, with a family member, with someone you care about, if you would, please. Point them over to my website, narclaninc.com, where you can link up with me on Facebook, Twitter, and download all the latest podcasts. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening.